This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the novel The Committed. The revolutions that have shaken our world um, over the last few centuries have not just been revolutions about men with guns. They've been revolutions driven by ideas. We'll be back with Viet Tan Nguyen in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer, the short story collection The Refugees, and nonfiction books Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War, and Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America. Nguyen wrote a children's book with his six-year-old son called Chicken of the Sea. He is also a professor at the University of Southern California. His new novel is called The Committed and is the second in a trilogy that began with The Sympathizer. In The Committed, his main character, known as a man of two minds, comes to Paris as a refugee in an attempt to escape his past and try his hand at capitalism by dealing drugs. He is traveling with his blood brother, Bon, who has very distinct ideas about communism and the war in Vietnam, as the man with two minds holds no allegiance to any dogma. Known as Vodan, the main character is still traumatized by his relationship with his former best friend, Man, and struggling to assimilate to French culture. We began the discussion with Viet Tan Nguyen sharing what was swirling in his head when he wrote The Committed. Well, basically, I finished the um, the sympathizer, and my agent said, "What's next?" And so I thought, "Oh, 
I need to write another book. And the idea of the sequel came pretty much immediately. Um, you know, the Sympathizer is many things, but one thing that it is is a spy novel. And in the world of the spy novel, sequels and now trilogies, is because that's what's going to happen, are perfectly acceptable. And besides that issue of the genre possibilities, I also felt that I wasn't done yet with the character of the sympathizer. He is a man who is a revolutionary, and he's lost his revolution at the end of the sympathizer, and he's been disillusioned. But he hasn't given up on the idea of revolution itself, so I wanted to ask the question, what happens to a revolutionary um, after the failure of their revolution? I, I feel like that question hasn't been talked about enough because typically these stories about disillusioned revolutionaries end at the moment of, of their disillusionment and we don't know what happens to them next. I think the, the assumption is, well, they'll, they'll go to the to America and you know, the land of the Happy Meal, um, but that's not what happens to our narrator. Yes, so we know him as Vodan, which translates to nameless. He is a man of many personalities. And it's something that he is very clear about sharing. It's something you you play with too, with point of view in the book. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it's like to both write about someone with multiple people kind of inside of them. And also what it's like what it was like for him, like who this character is with the multitudes that are within. Yeah, I mean, even from the very beginning, the premise of his character is that he's a man of two minds and two faces. He sees every issue from both sides. So the that, that, that issue of him always shuttling between perspectives has always been there. But in the second novel, in The Committed, it, it, it again picks up where the sympathizer left off. And at the end of the sympathizer, he's been deeply traumatized by the various events he's been through. And then when we get to the committed, eventually we realize he's also writing that. But this is also a confession written at the end of his experiences in the committed. And when you get to the end of his experiences, you realize he's been through even more things. So he's even more deeply traumatized. And, you know, since these books are confessions, and we see the world from his point of view, we're inhabiting that. So I'm not describing his trauma or all the various things he's been through from the outside, some kind of exterior third-person perspective, but from the inside. And so I wanted to try to convey that, not just in terms of what he says, but how he says it. So there's a lot of sh there's several shifts in perspective that take place from third person plural to first person to second person and so on, and um, it's uh, that's meant to convey the fact that he's looking at himself and looking through himself from different angles. And the last thing to say about that is I just let my my instincts guide me about when and where to shift from which perspective to another. And the, the driving impulse behind that, besides trying to capture his sense of fragmentation and trauma, was just to have fun. Uh, you know, I wanted to have fun writing this story. It might seem odd to say that I wanted to have fun writing a story in which there is crime and violence and um, trauma. But in fact, uh, from an artistic perspective, trying to figure out how to render these things in an entertaining fashion was fun. You have so much in here. I was like thinking, like, how do we how do we talk about 
this book. You you got in philosophy, you have politics, you have history, you have, I mean, not just philosophy, but, but deep philosophy, whole country, encapsulated histories. And how did you take all these ideas and put it within a plot and also just measure them out and and choose what you wanted to write about. I, I just imagine you were swirling with so much. Well, I hope it's entertaining and readable in the end, despite all of the ideas and themes and threads and so on that constitute the novel. Um, I mean, I think I've read novels that have been philosophy heavy uh, or, you know, politics heavy and have felt that sometimes they didn't work necessarily because the entertainment factor wasn't there or there wasn't um, balance in tones. So even, again, despite all, all the things that you've mentioned that exist in the book, there's even others, you know, like there's still, I hope, a tone of comedy and satire happening in the book as well. And the comedy and the satire exist to lighten the mood and to make it easier to absorb some of the, some of the more serious things that are uh, taking place. And so I think the most important thing to make everything work, if, if everything works, is to make sure that there's a plot in there. So there's a skeleton in the book that is the plot. There are beats that take place um, where key events happen. So hopefully there's a, there's a propulsive motion in the novel. And then it was important to set up characters and situations so that there would be reason for the grappling with ideas. Uh, so, for example, the the the, the our narrator um, gets to Paris, and he lives with his so-called aunt, who is an editor at a French publishing house, who works with you know very complicated fiction and philosophy. And so she has salons, and writers come by, and, and you know uh, academics come by, and they talk ideas. Um, I don't know if that's the world for most people, but when I go to Paris, that's what happens to me. <laughs> so it didn't seem to me to be unrealistic to have that kind of a of a, of a scenario. And then our, our nameless narrator himself, you know, he, as we know from The Sympathizer, has a master's degree in American studies. He's intellectually inquisitive. He's read some of these people from having an elite education. So I, I, that, that that's the primary um, justification for why these ideas come up. And as I said, he's a revolutionary who's lost his revolution. So in this novel, which is the middle of the trilogy, he's trying to reconstruct himself and interrogating everything that he holds dear, including the theory and the ideas that have, that have made him. And so that's the, uh, the, 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 the justification through character for why he's even concerned so explicitly with uh, some of these thinkers that he deals with. Well, I think, too, as a question for for writers who are really curious about how you actually pull this off, because as you said, it is encapsulated in a plot where he is, he kind of becomes a gangster, he becomes a drug dealer, he's mixed up in the underworld, sort of the Asian underworld of, of Paris, and he gets kicked around a lot by opposing underworld figures that are Algerian, but they have a shared sort of French colonial past and, and you were able to encapsulate all these ideas he has through, through the guise also of this confession and these ideas of, of him in salons talking. And I think that can be something for new, new writers that's hard to figure out. Like, how do I take all these ideas I have in my head and these things that I want to explore that are abstract, but make it into fiction that moves? 
Sure. I, I think that, you know, I, I spent 20 years um, writing a, a book called the, the Refugees, a short story collection, in which it was a huge struggle just to figure out how to set up a scene, how to make dialogue happen, seem natural, how to make a plot move forward and all that. So these are, you know, basic building blocks of writing realistic fiction. Um, and I felt that what happened to me was that The Refugees was not really the book that I imagined myself writing. Like, that's not the, the, the book in my mind um, that is my ideal book. It was, it was sort of my, my book of but my training wheels, like just trying to figure out how to balance myself on a bike and get from point A to, to point B. But really what I wanted to do was to write novels like The Sympathizer and The Committed, which were would be no more layered and uh, be dealing with ideas and, and um, uh, complex things ranging from plot to these themes we've been discussing. And so when I when I sat down to write The Sympathizer, even though I'd never done anything like that before, I broke through had broken through some wall uh, with writing those short stories and the the very basic building blocks of scene and setting and pacing and dialogue and so on. I no longer had to worry about those things, which then allowed me to deal with these other issues of themes and layers and ideas. So I when I read a lot of um, contemporary American prose fiction, it feels to me not very interesting because there, I don't see very many layers in a lot of these novels. I mean, the, the writers are concerned, obviously, about you know doing something very uh, uh, difficult still in terms of just writing a story that moves forward. But uh, under underneath, there's like <laughs> there's not a lot of substance for me to grapple with. So how did I do it? I don't know. I mean, I think that. Um, as I said, I think it's it's important to set up the, the premises of the book so that these different themes and layers become possible. So the, the choices that one makes as a writer, just in terms of, of, of where one starts, is really, really crucial. So in The Committed, I chose Paris, so we have a setting, and I chose Immigrant Paris. So automatically, when I choose Immigrant Paris versus the Paris of the Eiffel Tower and, and Tourist Paris, I'm going to get a very different texture. I chose the characters that would appear. So I have these French left-wing intellectuals who are white, and I have these immigrants or children of immigrants who are Asian, Southeast Asian, and Algerian, and Senegalese. Um, and then I chose a plot that involved crime and, and drugs on the one hand, and philosophers on the other. So these building blocks were really crucial then to allowing these types of conversations to happen. But I think a lot of writers choose to follow that dictum, write what you know, so they end up writing what they know, which can be very narrow and, and very shallow in a lot of ways. And it's not like I knew this world as a native person to Paris. I mean, I've been to Paris for 15 months and, you know, I'm, I'm learning French and all of that, but I still had to think hard about some of these characters and situations that I was setting up. So these choices, I think, of characters and setting, uh, historical time period, and even being conscious of, of politics, if you make these choices, then it becomes a lot easier to actually have plots that deal with them. And you said at the beginning that, you know, you were also really interested in this question of, you know, what does a revolutionary do 
when the revolutionaries cause might be gone or the revolution might be over. And you use the word revolution a lot in the book. And I started thinking about it. And sometimes, you know, when you overthink something, you're like, well, what does revolution even mean anymore? And I'm curious what it meant to you, or maybe that's a ridiculous question. I'm not sure. Well, there are revolutions as in the, the big social and political revolutions that the book mentions. Obviously, the Vietnamese revolution that he's been through, the the French and the American revolutions that are in the background, you know, that laid the foundation for the French society that he's in and for the American uh, history that he's been involved with. And then there's this other abstract revolution that hasn't happened yet. And that's what he brings up towards the end of the book. Again, this is this is the question of of a, a revolution that can bring around this ideal society that he has in mind. What would it involve? Um, and it's a revolution that for him hasn't been realized yet because the revolution that he's revolutions that he knows that he's been through have been violent revolutions. And there are, you know, manifestos on how to do these violent revolutions and why you should have these violent revolutions. And at the end of the book, he comes to an understanding, a realization that perhaps what he needs is a nonviolent revolution. And perhaps all the claims that the advocates of violent revolution have laid out could also be done through nonviolent revolution as well. And the specific figure here that he engages with is France Fanon, who's uh, well known for his arguments for the necessity of violence when it comes to anti-colonialism and revolution. And there's a lot of respect given to Fanon, but also an interrogation of his ideas. And then there's the question of the personal revolution, like what happens with inside each of us. And I think this is also really crucial. And this is what I think hopefully gives the sympathizer and the committed some depth, because if these were novels that were, that were only concerned with the big political revolutions, the stuff that's happening outside, they may not be as interesting. Um, because again, when we talk about fiction, we also, we're also we talking about an engagement, deep engagement with characters and their own vulnerabilities. So in both novels, we have a narrator who's, who's very opinionated. <laughs> he's, he, he's a lot to say, and he's very critical, and he's very satirical, and he's always punching upwards towards the powers that be. But he's also a character who's deeply vulnerable, who's constantly self-interrogating, and who's always the butt of history's jokes. And hopefully that breeds sympathy from, from, from readers for him. And part of what I think hopefully makes him sympathetic is that he's undergoing his own personal revolution in these two books, that he's, in, he's looking within himself, trying to understand who he is and his place in these political revolutions, um, and trying to understand what his own shortcomings are. And so at the end of The Sympathizer, you know, I said he, there was a failure of the political revolution, the communist revolution. But there's, a, there's another failure, and that is the failure of his own masculinity, you know, that um, he's never questioned his masculinity and his heterosexuality in The Sympathizer. And then when we get to the end of the book, we realize that his blindness towards his own masculinity and his own heterosexuality is, in fact, the blindness of uh, masculine warfare and masculine revolutions, including the communist revolution as well. Uh, and so in the, in the committed, one of the things that I wanted to do was not only to, to bring up this question of what is a revolution, revolu what does revolutionary do in search of a new revolution, but what does a revolutionary who's never had to interrogate his own masculinity do when he now has to do that? Um, so I, I, you know, the novel never, I don't know if it ever says the word, I think it says the word feminism once or twice, but it, it, 
it does not pretend to be a feminist novel in the, in the sense that, you know, he's suddenly going to become a feminist at the end of, it, of this experience, but he's constantly forced by circumstance and by the people that he encounters, um, women who are not feminists and women who are feminists, to, to look at himself quite deeply as a, as a man uh, and, 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 and to see that this part of himself, this masculine heterosexual part of himself that he's taken for granted for so long, needs to change. One of the things that I think is so intriguing is how you set up that he sees everything. Like he sees both sides of everything. And that can make life really, really complicated to see, be able to see both sides and not find your answer. And at, at the very end, he's kind of going through, you know, what what does it mean? What am I committed to? And he goes through, is it nonviolence or violence? Should we save ourselves? Should we destroy ourselves? Um, is it our humanity or our inhumanity that will that will triumph and... I thought that was a really powerful way to say, like, how complicated all of these questions are. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I that was a really fun passage to to write. Um, it wasn't very hard to write. It's it's a two page or more paragraph, <laughs> I think. And I've been waiting for a moment to be able to write something like that. Um, the inspiration for that comes from art. Um, Zoe Leonard had a had a poem uh, called uh, I, I want uh, I want I want a president I think it's called you know and, it, and it's just a, a paragraph long um, statement from a, this revolutionary feminist perspective about the president that Zoe Leonard wants who is the kind of president that America would never elect you know because she's bringing forward identities like being lesbian or uh, being homeless or being an artist and so on. These are the qualities that she wants in a president. And I was thinking of uh, text art that I'd seen um, in museums uh, in which the text itself became an object of art. And so I wanted a moment in the novel where the, the political sentiments of our sympathizer, our narrator, would be very explicitly stated uh, in a way that hopefully through its rhythm and through its form would not just simply be some kind of dry manifesto or, or list of bullet points or anything like that, but would be the climax of his own realization um, that all the, the entire force of the novel, all the plotting, all the violence, all of his agony and, and self-interrogation lead us to these two pages and that it would be crucial, that it would be one long two-page or more sentence, um, because we're this is the this you know, this is sort of the moment that he himself has been trying to to reach of his own understanding. And I love too because it's a confession, but also because he was a gangster and because he's been a murderer in his past. That there's also that question of the power of the pen versus the power of the gun. Yeah, I think that um, the power of the gun is very seductive. And a lot of writers who think of themselves as revolutionaries have given into the power of the gun. You see a lot of, of, of celebrations of violence and masculinity through the barrel of the gun and so on. Um, and I'm, I'm not personally in favor of that. You know, I don't think I, I would make a very good revolutionary in that sense. And 
when I was writing this book, one of the things that I was thinking is that here we have a a, um, a thriller in the conventional sense, a thriller about crime and drug dealing and gangster violence and all of that. But it's a thriller in another sense for me, which is that it's a novel of ideas. And I don't know what people think when they hear novel of ideas. But for me, I find ideas to be thrilling. My engagements with theory and philosophy have been absolutely formative for me as a as a writer, um, scholar, and uh, a thinker, if I can claim that title. And so it's thrilling to, to me to grapple with new ideas and to be moved by ideas. And the revolutions that have shaken our world um, over the last few centuries have not just been revolutions about men with guns. They've been revolutions driven by ideas. Um, these big ideas about democracy and equality and communism and utopia and all that kind of stuff. So that was how I thought of uh, this book as a thriller in that dual sense of both physical action, but also um, ideas being explored uh, in a very passionate way. I think within those ideas, you're talking a lot about these polar opposites and the narrator's going back and forth between various memories and things that he's doing in the present and where his allegiance lies with the people that he loves or should love. And you also have him thinking a lot about nihilism, about nothingness and how maybe nothingness is is the important thing maybe i'm mischaracterizing that but i i thought it was an interesting idea when he's struggling so much with very strong ideas that he kind of is seduced sometimes by the idea of nothingness at the end of the sympathizer there is a um an exploration of the idea of nothing and its duality there's a whole joke around nothing at the end of the um, the first book, um, and some readers, you know, said to me, "Oh, you, are you a nihilist? Are you since you bring up the idea of nothing, you must, you know, this must be the philosophy that you're advocating." And I thought, no, that's not it at all. Um, but I didn't know exactly what I was advocating. I mean, part of the, the the experience of writing these two books is, you know, they're partly very logically mapped out with outlines and and all this kind of st- and and deliberate things that I want to do, but they're also partly very intuitive. And coming up, coming up with this idea about the duality of nothing at the end of the first book was purely accidental. I had no idea I was going to get there. Um, and that was very exciting for me uh, to be surprised by, the, by what happened in the, at the end of the book. So I wanted to keep on asking myself, what do I mean by nothing? What is this duality of nothing? Uh, because I think in the West, as far as I understand it, when you say nothing, it's generally kind of a, a negative thing, you know. Uh, but in other contexts, uh, say Buddhism, nothingness is not necessarily bad. Uh, we have to be able to grapple with absence, with nothing, that nothing itself might be full of meaning. And so that's what happens at in this book, I mean, I wanted to to write a narrative that would that would force me to eventually come to an, a, a deeper understanding of nothing for myself, but also for our narrator. Uh, and the action of the book gives me and him the opportunity to once again confront nothing 
as something that's actually really powerful. I, I can't talk about it further without giving away a really key element of the uh, of the end of the book, something that took the narrator by surprise and me too, uh, because he has to make a very crucial moral decision towards the end of the book around nothing. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a paradox that nothing is nothing is something and sometimes something is nothing. Um, so I don't know how to, how to explain this any further, um, but uh, I, I think I'm not done with nothing yet. There's going to be a third novel, and I'm pretty sure I just have to keep on exploring nothing in that book as well. And your character, he likes the whiskey, he likes the hashish, he likes the what's called the remedy, the cocaine, and and maybe it's sort of a numbing. Maybe it's maybe it brings something out in him. It's something that he he ends up relying on more and more as the book goes on. Well, you know, drugs are fun. I don't think there's any point in denying that. And uh, he's a man who likes his pleasures. And, uh, you know, the remedy, just I'll just talk about that briefly. You know, I, I did not name the specific drug because I was not that interested in the specific drug. Um, I read, you know, a very influential book for me was Alfred McCoy's um, The Politics of Heroin, which talked about the global drug trade and its connection to uh, imperial warfare and colonization. Uh, but I didn't want to get into all the mechanics of it. You know, writers like Don Winslow in his Border Trilogy, you know, he's brilliant in talking about very specific drugs and very specific aspects of the drug trade. And for me, that wasn't the novel that I wanted to write because I was more interested in the thematic issues. And The Remedy just then came in as, I guess you would call it, um, a MacGuffin. Right, that Hitchcockian term, you put that thing in the plot to make the plot happen, but the thing itself is really not that important. So it wasn't really important whether it was cocaine or heroin or some kind of synthetic drug or anything like that. And to call it the remedy would bring up all these other uh, thematic issues around why we need drugs and what is a remedy and and is writing a remedy, which is ultimately one of the, the points that the, uh, the novel turns towards. And of course, you know, we need a lot of remedies in our lives, not just drugs, but of course, uh, beliefs, all kinds of beliefs, whether it's religion or other kinds of political ideologies. And so our narrator is a believer. He is a man who needs to believe. And so he's, that's why he's always in quest of a new revolution or, or a new ideology for himself to follow. And because he's in a moment of desperation in book two, The Committed, where his revolution has been shattered, yes, he does then turn to another remedy the drug in this case. And it sort of represents because he's so heady to me, the um, corporeal, the the embodied aspects of being alive, that human, the thrill you get from doing drugs or the, the pain you get from a hangover. Um, you, you have a lot of that too. There's, there's, there's violence, there's him getting beat up. So there's a lot that has to do with the body. There's um, he, he and his friend Bond join this troupe that's going to do like a play. And so he's sort of acting. And um, I mean, there's a lot more to that. They're, they're a, a whole group of people that they decide to sort of spy on. But um, there's that action part too. I don't know if you thought of it as a somatic element to the, to the novel, but it struck me as that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I think that, um, yeah. There, 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 there's a lot of performances that are happening 
in the book. You know, people are on stage singing and dancing and all that. And then there's all there's all the drug taking, which is obviously both a psychological and a physical um, experience that you feel deeply within your body. And then there's the violence that's being done to people or that people are doing to other people. Yeah. So he, the narrator, is feeling all these things deeply, both, you know, at the level of, this, of his of psychology, but his emotions and obviously in, in his body um, as well. And I wanted to try to capture all of that, I guess, um, because the traumatic experiences in which that he undergoes are at, at, at the most, uh, you know, at, at the deepest level, they're, they're psychological and emotional traumas, but oftentimes they begin through the body, through the torture that he's experiencing or the violence that he's inflicting or threatening to inflict. And uh, there's no getting around that that corporeal um, dimension. So, yeah. And he misses his mother. Still, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think one of the more redeeming aspects of the narrator is that he is capable of deep love and affection, um, especially towards his blood brothers, especially towards Bond, who's the one who's most present in this book, and then towards his mother, his absent mother. Um, it's, you know, when I, when I was writing The Sympathizer, the most emotional moment in writing The Sympathizer was this moment where he's in the Philippines on this movie set at this fake cemetery, and he's persuaded the set designer to create a tomb for his mother, a tombstone for his mother. And he's, he's, he kneels there, and he's so deeply moved by this experience. And I was moved by the fact that he was moved. Um, and, you know, some readers have told me this is the part that they found the most emotional in the book for good reason. And so I wanted to continue that in The Committed. It's one of his redeeming features that he cares about his mother. But it, he's also deeply idealizes her. You know, I don't think he realizes who she is completely as a human being. He only sees her in this ideal fashion as this this beautiful young mother who gave up everything for him and who was uh, molested and raped by his father, the French priest, you know, who, as an older man, impregnated this 13-year-old girl. So she's this very, you know, pure person in his mind. And I don't think that's who she is. Um, but I can't tell the reader who she really is because we only have access to her through him. The other driving question that you, you say in, in actual language at one point in the book, but that I felt was driving the book in my reading was the question of how do you forgive the unforgivable? That is a very important question for the novel, for our narrator, for me. When I first came across it, and then this is philosophy, you know, in, in Jacques Derrida's book on cosmopolitanism and forgiveness, I thought, wow, Derrida is full of crap. Because Derrida, Derrida, the philosopher, was saying the, only, the, 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 uh, the only thing worth forgiving is the unforgivable. And I thought, wow, that, that just doesn't make any sense. How, 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 can, how, can that, how can you do that? But I think he actually put his finger right on the problem. You know, what, I mean, if something is, is forgivable and we, we forgive, is that really worth that much? And, and, and while the, whatever constitutes the unforgivable is very subjective for each of us, um, if we cannot forgive the unforgivable, then maybe we're not really truly capable of forgiveness. That's, that's the crux of the 
spiritual and philosophical matter that Derrida wants to get to. So I never mentioned Derrida's name in the book, although I, I mentioned him in the acknowledgments, but that is the problem that ultimately haunts our narrator. He's done unforgivable things. Um, that he's done things that other people would find unforgivable. He's done things that he himself finds unforgivable. And he wants to, he's trying to figure out a way to live with himself in these books, in these confessions. And one of those crucial things is to try to figure out if he himself is forgivable. Um, and that is contrasted with other horror, you know, crimes that are being done in the book, but also with historical crimes. So one of the historical crimes that, that is brought up is the Cambodian genocide that's, that has just taken place, just, you know, finished a couple of years before the start of this novel, and, and it's just being revealed in newspaper reports. I mean, people are, are, are literally finding out, about, finding out about this around the world in the early 1980s. And that, that Cambodian genocide is directly connected to the Vietnamese Revolution and the French Revolution. Um, you know, that the Cambodian revolutionaries... Pol Pot and his 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 uh, his his major allies were all French educated in Paris, you know. And how do we both hold the French responsible for that, but also hold the Khmer Rouge responsible for that? And that seems really unforgivable. Um, both, I mean, it seems unforgivable what the Khmer Rouge did in Cambodia, but is it? Uh, any more unforgivable than what the French did in colonizing Indochina. Um, and so against the backdrop of these big historical, political issues and questions, we have this foregrounding of our narrator's own wrestling with his unforgivable deeds. And then if you're a conscious reader and looking at what's going on around us and, and you talk about race um, in, in the book, you think about our own country and how we were founded and the, the racism and slavery that founded our country and the racism that goes on today against blacks, against Asian Americans, against women, against transgender. And, and what do we do with that? How do we institutionally face that and, and forgive? Can we, should we, how do we move forward? Yeah. I think those are live questions and live controversies that each of us has to confront. I mean, we confront it as a nation and we're divided as a nation over whether we should even acknowledge some of these things that you talked about, whether they were even constitutive of the nation as a whole. I mean, these are deep divisions. And then there's that issue of forgiveness and reconciliation. What would that entail? On the one hand, there's the question of individual reconciliation and forgiveness, the things that we have to do as uh, people who come face to face with other people. But then there's the question of collective forgiveness and reconciliation, what we have to do as a country. And and um, these are important questions because would that involve just like an apology? Would that involve reparations? And if we're talking about reparations, what exactly are we talking about? So none of these issues are easy. And that's why I don't think the, the committed offers any resolution to these uh, to these problems. And that's why I think hopefully it is relevant today to today, because the unforgivability of the problems that you raised are not didn't happen to didn't happen last year. You know they've been going on for a long time, 
and uh, certainly as, as, as you know what you know in the 1980s where the novel is set, and certainly not just within the United States, but in France and in Indochina as well. On some of the lighter notes of the book, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Fantasia. Oh yeah, Fantasia was a lot of fun. So in the novel. Uh, they're in Paris, and all the Vietnamese in Paris get very excited because a cabaret show, a, a song and dance review, is coming to town called Fantasia, and it's based on uh, on a real thing, which is Paris by night. So when the Vietnamese were dispersed as refugees or after the war, war's end in 1975, uh, one of the first things they did, at least the ones who came to France and the United States, was to start their own show called Paris by Night because, you know, the Southern Vietnamese refugees uh, like to sing and dance and smoke and, and, and hang out in nightclubs. It's a real thing. So Paris by Night uh, is now, I believe, in about its 140th episode, somewhere around there. Um, you can get them on videotape and then on DVDs. And they're really like these big extravaganzas with singers and dancers dressed in very risque fashions, sitting before a crowd of hundreds or thousands, and it's all filmed with, you know, fancy lighting and a really high-grade production now. So the, the, the conceit here in this novel is that Fantasia is this show. It's early in its inception. I think it's like episode eight that they're going to film in Paris. And uh, who's going to be the headliner for the show? A, uh, a woman named Lana who in The Sympathizer, our narrator, had an affair with, the woman he should not have had an affair with, as he says. And now she's coming to to uh, to Paris. And part of the point of doing that was, number one, I think it's a lot of fun um, to have singing and dancing and all that. But the, the point, one of the points that the novel wants to make with this is that um, people have the right, should have the right to represent themselves. Uh, for Vietnamese people, in the years after the war, the only way they were represented and through things like Hollywood was through Hollywood's Vietnam War movies in which Vietnamese people had no meaningful role at all except to scream and be killed and to say thank you. And so here the Vietnamese take control of their own means of representation. And what do they do with it? They don't do anything high-minded with it. They put on a song and dance show. And that's exactly the point, you know, that entertainment itself is is important to people. That's that's something that I recognized growing up in the Vietnamese refugee community, that people of all kinds took such pleasure in watching Paris by night, including my very devout Catholic parents. And this is something, this idea of representing yourself and, and seeing yourself reflected in things that are pleasurable and entertaining is something that people of the majority take for granted, but people of a minority cannot. So it becomes uh, latently political, at least, to stage something that seems that seems so apolitical as Fantasia in Paris by Night. You had mentioned that Lana was in the first book and they had an affair and she reappears. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of risks or or things that you have to be extra cautious about when you're writing a sequel in case people haven't read the first one and how you how you worked with that and both my agent and my editor you know were were reminding me periodically that the committed is both a sequel but also has to stand alone so whoever picks it up can just jump right into it and uh that was always my experience too reading uh, like detective novels and spy novels for example uh, that feature a character who 
is in a recurring series of adventures. That you could just, you know, it'd be great to start from book one of, you know, Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress. You know, uh, that's book one of the Easy Rollins series. But you could also just like jump in at any point in the sequence of Easy Rollins mysteries. And I assume the same thing for James Bond, although I've never read a James Bond novel. So that was a challenge. And um, another challenge was that in reading sometimes books that are part of series or trilogies and so on, it becomes very obvious when the author is telling us information that we need to know from an earlier book. You know, the the, the, the action will, or the narration or whatever will just pause and you know, we'll have filler about what, it ha- what, has, what has already happened. And there's no justification for doing that. It's just it's a necessity for the plot, for the reader to be reoriented towards the history of this character or this story. So my challenge was to both make the committed standalone and fill in the reader on what had previously happened, but not to make it just seem like an artificial insertion of information that has no rhyme or reason to be there in the story. So the way that I got around that was, again, through this mechanism of the confession. He's writing this book at the end of his experiences in Paris, uh, and he's writing it to people who don't know anything about him and what he's been through. And so that's the logic for why you know, every now and then he'll tell us something about the past, about who Lana is and what they've done together um, and other characters and, and things like that. Do you ever get the sense there might be more than three no. <laughs> God, no. I mean, I've, I've learned something from watching like TV series and, and the sympathizer is inspired by, by TV series, not by movies. You know, like the sympathizer is written as 26 chapters and they're all the same length. And that was because I was watching a lot of classic uh, TV, like the wire and mad men and Sopranos for the first time. And I thought of the, I thought of the structuring the book in that, in that serial television fashion. But sometimes you know, TV series outstay their welcome. They, the writers don't know when to end a series or they, or, you know, or the producers just want to keep on making money. I'm not sure what it is. And so I don't want this sympathizer to overstay his welcome. Um, and I, you know, it's a trilogy that, uh, uh, that appropriates genre aspects of spy and crime, but it, in and of itself, it's not purely a genre trilogy because it also aspires to be literary and so that's a different that's a different consideration than simply wanting to keep on writing like 20 or 50 books in the sympathizer series. Uh, so there has to be, I think, an end to his story, even if there isn't an end to the things that he is concerned about. So that's going to be one of the tricky elements of the third part of the trilogy to both bring closure to his experiences, but also open up the, the themes um, of that the open up the themes that the trilogy is concerned with because there is no closure on the themes that he's dealing with. And you said earlier that um, that this was really there's so much feminism and there's a a big element to that in the book and you dedicated it to your daughter. Sure, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Like I don't know how I would feel if she herself were to read it at a certain point in her life. I think about. The fact that sometimes at my at my readings, when we have physical readings, some very young people would <laughs> either be in the audience or would come up and tell me that they had read the book, uh, The Sympathizer. Um, sometimes it's young. The youngest reader I encountered, I think, was like 13 or 14 years old. And one time this uh, maybe 15 or 16-year-old teenage teenager, young woman, came up and 
and she showed me the inside of her front cover for the sympathizer. It's all dense with notes. And she said, this is all that I've learned from your book about sex and alcohol. <laughs> I was like, great. So uh, I, I think that's awesome. But I, I feel nervous about my own children do, you know, doing that. And I have to get into the mindset that when I was 13 through 17 in the San Jose Public Library, I was reading a lot of probably very inappropriate things, including, you know, Portnoy's complaint when I was 13 or 14 years old and, and uh, not remembering anything about it except, you know, the most infamous parts, which are alluded to in The Sympathizer. So I've, I've, I've dedicated my books to different members of my family, from my parents to my, my brother and, and then my wife and my son, Ellison. So, of course, Simone deserves a book of her own. And uh, she was the only one who hadn't had a book dedicated to her. And, and you know, I think she arrived as I was finishing the book. I mean, my, my, mind, my mind is all kind of mentally – my, my timeline is all messed up because of the pandemic, you know. But, but no, the, the, the book was, was – uh, close to being done when she herself arrived. So it was perfect to, to dedicate the book to her. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm a big fan of Edward P. Jones. And I've met him in person, and I really admire him as a human being as well. Uh, so this is from his book, Lost in the City. It's a short story collection that I, will, that I have praised and I will keep on praising to the end of time. Uh, I think of it as, you know, as Dubliners for Washington, D.C., and a uh, book, b- book entirely focused on uh, the black uh, experience in Washington, D.C., a book that I found deeply moving, and, and also a book of short stories in which I felt that the book was, was, greater, than the su- was greater than the sum of its parts. Like, all, many of the stories are wonderful, but all together as a book, it was amazing. And that's what I hoped for my own book, The Refugees. I don't think I did it, but you know that was that was a that was an aspiration. So here's the first page from the title from the first story, The Girl Who Raised Pigeons. Her father would say years later that she had dreamed that part of it, that she had never gone out through the kitchen window at two or three in the morning to visit the birds. By that time in his life, he would have so many notions about himself set in concrete, and having always believed that he slept lightly. He would not want to think that a girl of nine or ten could walk by him at such an hour in the night without his waking and asking of the dark, Who is it? What's the matter? But the night visits were not dreams, and they remained forever as vivid to her as the memory of the way the pigeons' iridescent necklaces flirted with light. The visits would begin not with any compulsion in her sleeping mind to visit, but with the simple need to pee or to get a drink of water. In the dark, she went barefoot out of her room, past her father in the front room conversing in his sleep, across the kitchen and through the kitchen window, out over the roof a few steps to the coop. It could be winter, it could be summer, but the most she ever got was something she called pigeon silence. Sometimes she had the urge to unlatch the door and go into the coop, or at the very least, to try to reach through the wire and the wooden slats, to stroke a wing or a breast, to share whatever it, the silence, seemed to conceal. But she always kept her hands to herself, and after a few minutes, as if relieved, she would go back to her bed and visit the birds again in sleep. Do you want to share why you chose that? I could read, you know, read any passage from his books, but uh, I just love the rhythm and the voice and the emotion in those first two paragraphs of the book. They're quiet. They're intimate. 
they introduce us to this young girl and uh, about something very meaningful to her. And then we also get a, a hint of her father, who will be more important later in the story. Um, and that's what I love about this book. It's like we j I just feel for all the characters and the, the stories are, are very quiet and they're very intimate. And I'm deeply moved by stories like that. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is from chapter one, page three of The Committed, and I'll explain why I chose this. I may no longer be a spy or a sleeper, but I am most definitely a spook. How can I not be with two holes in my head from which leaks the black ink in which I am writing these words? What a peculiar condition, being dead, yet penning these lines in my little room in paradise. This must make me a ghost writer, and as such, it is a simple, if spooky, matter to dip my pen into the ink flowing from my twin holes, one drilled by myself, the other by Bond, my best friend and blood brother. Put your gun down, Bond. You can only kill me once, or maybe not. I'm also still a man of two faces and two minds, one of which might perhaps yet still be intact. With two minds, I'm able to see any issue from both sides. And while I once flattered myself that this was a talent, now I understand it to be a curse. What was a man with two minds except a mutant, perhaps even a monster? Yes, I admit it. I'm not just one, but two. Not just I, but you. Not just me, but we. So that was a, a difficult thing to write um, because I didn't write, I didn't finish writing this part of the book until the end of the book uh, of writing the book. And uh, why the reason why was because in opening this book, the book opens with an with a, with a prologue, but then getting to chapter one, I wanted to repeat the opening of the sympathizer because I've been influenced by reading um, <laughs> honestly books like Tintin, the comic book series with my son because that's an action adventure series, and there's a, a lot of, of uh, repetition um, that readers from one book to the next will, will be able to orient themselves stylistically in the world of Tintin. And uh, that's also true for certain other kinds of series as well. So that's what I wanted to do to have the repetition. But I also thought... Uh, by the time I got to the end of the book that, you know, the, the beginning of the book has to foreshadow some of the things that would take place by the end. And so, you know, I want to hook the reader in. And so here we have an opening scenario. Why does he have holes in his head? Why did Bond, his best friend, shoot him and kill him? And if he's dead, how can he be talking about this? Uh, so all of that was that all of that could only be put in after I had finished the book and knew what the ending of the book was. Where do you write? You know, most of my life I wrote in a corner of a bedroom looking at a blank wall. Uh, nothing fancy about that. And then I've been very lucky that after the success of The Sympathizer, I was able to move to a house where I have my own office now, which is where we're talking. And I can look out my window at um, a, a, guard, a, a, a garden with a lot of trees. Uh, so it's a pretty luxurious environment. I'm very grateful for it, but it has nothing to do with the writing. I mean, again, you should be able to write anywhere. And that's what I've done most of my life. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? 
I don't know if I get away from writing at all. I, I think that my life is my family, my teaching and my writing, and then uh, my traveling to give lectures. That's basically it. So there is no time away from writing that is not also some kind of work or something like that. And uh, time, if I have time away from my family and time away from my writing, I end up sitting here in this office for reading books or doing emails. So there's really very little free time for me. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Historically, it's been my wife. She's read almost everything I've written since we've been together, which uh, is, I'm sure, a very painful experience for her, you know, to see early drafts of early short stories from 20 years ago. And then uh, that wasn't true as much for the committed, you know, because now we have two kids and she's a writer and a professor and things got really, really, really busy these last couple of years. So uh, in the case of the committed, actually, you know, I had to turn to a couple of writer friends whose opinions I trusted, given the political nature of this book, it was very important to find readers who would understand the historical and political issues that the book was engaged with. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I mean, it's terrible to be rejected. Uh, and then I allow myself to feel bad for a day, mope around and all that. And then the next day, I think I'm a pretty resilient person. So the next day, I'm usually fine. <laughs> Just got to go back to work. And I think besides having some emotional resilience, also having just being a really stubborn person, um, it takes a lot of stubbornness to to work through a short story collection for 20 years, as I did. And I don't know where, where that comes from, actually. You know, but uh, just this dogged willingness to keep on writing. And I think this awareness that rejection in the world of literature is not an indication of your own failure. It could be an indication of your own failure, failure, but sometimes it's the indication of the failure of the people who've read your work to understand what you're doing. And you have to have faith in yourself at that point. And what is your favorite word? Apparently, my favorite word is well, because when I look at the transcripts of my interviews, oftentimes I'll just begin every response by saying, well, and then I'll go on. Thank you so much for spending this hour with me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Mitzi. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the novel The Committed. If you liked today's show, check out my previous interview with Wynn, where we discussed his short story collection, The Refugees. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it to the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Diane Seuss, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Ethan Rutherford. 
I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.